High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. You Must Remember This is sponsored by Smith & Noble. Get 25% off on your window treatments plus free design consultation at smithandnoble.com remember. And by The Great Courses Plus. Watch hundreds of video courses free for a month at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash remember. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a kiss of Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting the read and advocates the views expressed. I had my way about it. They'd all be sent back to Russia. Back to Russia. In the atmosphere created by HUAC and stoked by the equally headline-thirsty Senator Joseph McCarthy, Nevada Senator Pat McCarran made a name for himself, 
literally lending his name to one of the key pieces of legislation of the era relevant to our purposes, the McCarran Act, also known as the Internal Security Act or the Subversive Activities Control Act. This bill, which was vetoed by President Truman, but became law anyway after both houses of Congress voted to override Truman's veto, essentially turned the paranoid, isolationist rhetoric of the Cold War into law, and it all but outlawed communism. The act included provisions which would make it legal to seize the passport of suspected subversives, to detain them within the United States, or deport them. Once the act passed over Truman's veto, McCarran was given his own Senate subcommittee through which to hold hearings and fund investigations to aid the act's enforcement. The McCarran committee didn't occupy itself much with Hollywood. Obviously, that beat was covered elsewhere, and McCarran was mostly interested in the State Department. But the subcommittee did call one group of entertainers to testify. In previous episodes, we've noted the blatant racism of some of the men pushing the anti-communist agenda, from KKK defending HUAC early member John Rankin to J. Edgar Hoover, who believed black civil rights activists were agents of communism. Add McCarran to that list. He was a well-known anti-Semite who repeatedly blocked efforts by others in Congress to pass bills providing asylum or aid to European refugees and Holocaust survivors. McCarran was so notorious that in 2012, current Nevada Senator Harry Reid argued that his name should be taken off the Las Vegas airport. Pat McCarran was one of the most um, anti-Semitic, some of you might know my wife's Jewish, uh, the most anti-black, one of the most prejudiced people that's probably ever served in the Senate. So... It's not a decision I'm going to make, but if you ask me to give you my opinion, I don't think his name should be on anything. We're talking about McCarran today because once he was given his own committee, he decided to try to prove that entertainers of European descent, i.e. Jews mostly, were particularly likely to have subversive affinities. In early 1952, McCarran went looking for a star who fit his bill, of which he could make an example. And he picked Judy Holliday. Judy Holliday was a second-generation Ellis Island immigrant from Russia, which made her good casting for McCarran's purposes, even if visually she hardly fit the anti-Semite's nightmare caricature of a threatening Jew. Visually, Judy Holliday looked kind of like a curvier and kookier Reese Witherspoon, and arguably there would be no Tracy Flick or Elle Woods if not for the roles Holiday pioneered, like Billy Dawn and Gladys Glover. Over the course of 22 years, Judy Holiday had only about eight substantial film roles, but three of those films are now undisputed classics, and another of them is Bells Are Ringing, the last great Freed Unit musical at MGM, which Judy starred in after winning a Tony for the stage version, one of only five plays she starred in. One of the other plays was Born Yesterday. Judy won an Oscar for the film version, which was her first starring movie role. In short, her career was short, but her batting average was pretty spectacular. Think of Judy Holliday as a female analog to a previous subject in this series, John Garfield. 
She was a full-on original who stood out in Hollywood at a time when the film industry was valuing sameness more than ever. Her incredibly strong body of work is not as well known today as it should be, and she died far too young. In Holliday's case, unlike Garfield's, the accusations levied on her by anti-communists had nothing to do with her early death. But like Garfield, Judy Holliday was subject to that persecution in part because she represented an unusual authenticity, which, in its very unapologetic difference, served as a critique of a culture that was trying to conflate conformity with safety. Join us, won't you? for the Blacklist story of Judy Holliday. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel And a lot of the time, my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash YMRT. All of you know how much the movies focus on the look of their sets to create a feeling. Same with us. The space we live in affects the way we feel. It's important that you're happy with the look and feel of your own home. So why not start by updating your window treatments with Smith & Noble? Smith & Noble's beautiful, handcrafted blinds, drapes, shades, and shutters are custom-made just for you, and they offer different service options to fit your needs. Work one-on-one with one of their expert in-home designers, or take advantage of their free measuring and low-cost installation services to guarantee a perfect fit for your window treatments. Or if you decide to do it yourself, they have online and phone support. Create a space that you'll love. Get started today. Contact Smith & Noble to get my special limited-time offer. 25% off on your window treatments, plus free design consultation. For details about this special offer, go to smithandnoble.com slash remember. That's smithandnoble.com slash remember. Or call 1-800-659-3300. 
That's 1-800-659-3300. Judy Holliday was born Judith Tuvim in Queens in 1921, although she would fudge her age for most of her adult life. After high school, on vacation in the Catskills with her mother, Judy met Adolph Green, a would-be musical theater star who produced nightly entertainment for the assembled local tourists. Judy began collaborating with Green on these shows, but at the end of the summer, they went their separate ways. Judy later encountered Green again by chance back in New York when she ducked into a doorway to escape a flash rainstorm and found herself inside a club called the Village Vanguard. Green and his partner Betty Comden and a few others had a cabaret act at this Greenwich Village not spot called The Reviewers. Judy, who had recently been employed as a switchboard operator at Orson Welles' Mercury Theater, soon joined the act. At this point, she didn't think of herself as a performer. She was an intellectual, politically conscious and passionately liberal, and she told everyone that she aspired to write and direct theater. It seems evident that her insistence that she belonged behind the scenes had something to do with Judy's insecurity over her looks, particularly her weight, which fluctuated. But after a few months with the reviewers, no one believed her anymore when she said what she really wanted to do was write and direct. She was just too good on stage. As the reviewers started building an audience and talent scouts started trooping down to the village to see them, it was Judy that they wanted, and not the rest of the reviewers. When she was offered a movie contract by 20th Century Fox, Judy insisted that her collaborators be offered work, too. The reviewers appeared together in one film, but then Comden, Green, et al. went back to New York. Judy stayed in Hollywood long enough for the studio to de-Semitize her last name and attempt to give her a glamour makeover. She also had a brief affair with Nicholas Ray, which fell apart after he tried to rope her into a drunken, walk-into-the-sea suicide pact which Ray called off at the last minute. After a couple of small parts, and then six months of offering her no work, Fox didn't renew her contract, and soon Judy was back in New York. Judy thought she'd pick up where she left off before her stint in Hollywood, but life had gone on without her. Her old reviewer comrades, led by Comden and Green, were now mounting an original Broadway musical called On the Town. Though there were a couple of parts in the musical which would have perfectly suited Judy, no one had thought to offer her a spot in the show. Broke, living with her mother, Judy bought a mink coat to get her through the winter, but she usually couldn't afford food. She'd meet the -the on-the-town crew at Sardi's, order coffee or a single cocktail, and sit there in her mink while everyone ate. At the end of the night, she'd ask the waiter to bag up her friends' scraps for her dog. One of those nights waiting for table scraps at Sardi's changed Judy's life. Also at the On the Town table that night, at the invitation of Green, was Herman Shumlin, a major producer who was looking for a girl to play a quasi-prostitute in his new show called Kiss Them For Me. Judy got the part and got the only good reviews accorded to the show. It was while she was starring in Kiss Them For Me that someone gave producer Max Gordon the idea that Judy would make a suitable replacement for Jean Arthur, the big star who was about to drop out of a show called Born Yesterday. Judy, who was given just three days to learn the part, debuted as Billy Dawn in Born Yesterday in Philadelphia, and then made the transfer with the show to Broadway 
in February 1946. Born Yesterday became a sensation, and Judy stayed with it for over three years. An insanely long commitment, which she seems to have stuck with in hopes of forcing the hand of the eventual producers of the movie version. Though Judy ultimately got the movie role that she wanted, there's no indication it had anything to do with her longevity in the Broadway version. Columbia chief Harry Cohn had bought the rights to the play with the idea of casting Rita Hayworth, then the studio's biggest female star. When Hayworth decided to retire from movies to marry Prince Ali Khan, Garson Kanan, who would be adapting his play, tried to convince Cohn to cast Judy instead. But it was an uphill battle. Cohn acknowledged that Judy had been perfect for the part in the play, but he did not have much faith in her movie stardom. Cohn thought Judy was fat and had the kind of face that looked okay from a distance, up on a stage, but would never hold up to a movie close-up. In order to prove Cohn wrong, Kanan conspired to get Judy cast in a supporting part in a movie he had written for Hepburn and Tracy, Adam's Rib. Once Cohn saw Judy in Adam's Rib, and after she submitted to three screen tests, Cohn gave in, but he wasn't happy about it. Cohn swore, If only that cunt Hayworth hadn't married that Muslim playboy. And yet, he conceded to giving Judy an unusual contract proviso. She would only be required to film one film per year, so as to make time for her to also appear on the stage. Cohn accepted, although when he finally met Judy in person, he took one look at her and sighed, Well, I've worked with fat asses before. With that settled... Judy went on a diet of broth, poached eggs, cottage cheese, and liver to slim down for her first starring movie role. Directed by George Cukor from Kanan's script, Born Yesterday softly assails corruption in Washington by telling the story of Billy Dawn, the mole of Harry, a brutish racketeer who arrives with his entourage in the political capital to solidify his relationship with the congressman that he's paid off. William Holden is Paul, the political reporter who the gangster takes a weird shine to. Harry's essentially made Billy his captive, giving her a corporate title and putting huge portions of his business in her name, presumably for tax purposes. Harry pays Billy with dresses and jewels, but she also has to put up with him constantly barking orders at her and cutting off any and all of her attempts to assert her own identity. When Harry decides Billy is in danger of embarrassing him in Washington, he hires the journalist to tutor her. In their first session, Billy tells Paul why she doesn't need him, and Kanan subtly critiques the era's thoughtless consumerism in the process. He thinks I'm too stupid, huh? Uh, no. He's right, I'm stupid and I like it. You do? Sure, I'm happy. I get everything I want, too many coats, everything. That's not my wall I ask. If you don't act friendly, I don't act friendly. Uh So, as long as I know how to get what I want, that's all I want to know. As long as you know what you want. Sure. What? As long as you know what you want. You trying to mix me up? Well, no. Billy and Paul almost immediately fall in love, but he's afraid to take her away from his gangster employer. Believing she can win him over, Billy decides to take Paul's tutelage seriously. 
She becomes sincerely transformed by just a cursory understanding of the way the American democratic system was meant to work, in contrast to the way she can see it working in her own home at the behest of her crooked boyfriend. Eventually, Billy and Paul work together to put Harry in his place, and then they speed off to the altar, with Billy exchanging what amounts to sexual slavery for an enlightened partnership with a man who wants her to be the most learned, free-thinking version of herself that she can be. Thorne yesterday is a little too earnest at times, and the scenes dramatizing Billy's Washington education can be really slow. But there's no question that it's a uniquely progressive film for its time. And with it, Judy Holliday established herself as a totally unique star. This was not for lack of trying on Columbia's part to transform Judy into a conventional glamour girl. Her weight was enforced during shooting by the costumes designed by Jean-Louis, which included sharp boning at the waist, which would dig into Judy's flesh if she gained so much as a pound. And her mousy blonde roots had to be bleached platinum every three days. Still, she looks like no one else in movies in Born Yesterday. And part of this is the deliberately vanity-free way that she carries herself, wiggling her soft hips and almost sneering her way through the first act of the movie. A famous story about Judy plays up her unusually awkward relationship to her own allure. A Columbia still photographer was trying to get a glamour shot of her, but she just couldn't look sexy on command. On another diet, squeezed into another boned dress and weak from hunger, she asked the photographer to list some things that he had eaten recently. He told her about a thick steak, French onion soup, macaroni salad, and her eyes watered, and the photographer said, That's it. Sexy. I think Judy Holliday was beautiful, but even I wouldn't argue that it was her looks that made her a star in 1950. But I think it might have been her apparent willingness to make fun of her looks that made her lovable, that revealed in subtle ways the sham of Hollywood beauty while she was being made to conform to it. Columbia eventually realized that it was this that made Judy special, that she was a normal woman being asked to match an abnormal standard. But the studio would forever struggle to find movie vehicles that made the most of it. Born Yesterday made Judy Holliday a movie star, but the glory was short-lived. Throughout her initial flush of stardom, anyone who paid attention to the anti-communist media would have described Judy Holliday as a fellow traveler. Her history of support of organizations which promoted civil rights and protested against war and censorship, as well as her vocal support of the Hollywood 10 and progressive candidate Henry Wallace, was all well known and frequently mentioned in the types of publications which made it their bread and butter to out potential communist sympathizers. She was named in Red Channels, a publication put out by former FBI agents, which revealed the names of 151 people working in radio and TV who they claimed were pro-communist. She was also named in the similar newsletter, Counterattack. Both of these publications also named Born Yesterday writer Garson Kanan. Judy didn't take this kind of press seriously. She still believed that any intelligent person would be able to tell the difference between a good old-fashioned liberal and a dangerous communist. What she didn't know was that red channels would be used as the quote-unquote evidence to support the blacklisting of dozens of radio, TV, and film performers. 
She also didn't know that a full six months before Born Yesterday even went into release, the FBI started investigating Judy, trying to prove that she was, or had been, a member of the Communist Party, with an eye toward putting her on the so-called security index of subversives who could be rounded up and interned in the event of the Cold War warming up on domestic shores. It was presumed that Holiday must have commie credentials because of her known history of performing at benefits for front groups and related causes. But even the FBI had to acknowledge that this was not quite the same as plotting the overthrow of the government, and their investigation of Judy concluded that there was no evidence that she had ever been a member of the party. But the FBI's findings were not made public at the time. And as Judy's star rose with the release of Born Yesterday, the right-wing press pounced on her and Garson Kanan as the latest examples of Hollywood overlooking the subversives in their midst. Now that she was the flavor of the year, Judy was becoming a more valuable get for the anti-communist trophy hunters. But despite the flurry of fear-mongering press, Born Yesterday was a smash hit, It became the seventh highest grossing film of 1950, and Judy won the Best Actress Oscar in March 1951, up against the formidable competition of Sunset Boulevard's Gloria Swanson and Betty Davis from All About Eve. Judy wasn't the only red-smeared person to win an Oscar that year. Jose Ferrer, who won the Best Actor Prize for his turn as Cyrano de Bergerac, had also been named by Red Channels. And in his acceptance speech, He obliquely referred to the unwelcome challenge to his Americanism by declaring that he saw the award as the industry's vote of confidence in him. The fact that the Academy gave both of their top acting prizes that year to performers who had been publicly shamed as commie sympathizers is perhaps a testament to how deaf Hollywood remained, and maybe was determined to try to remain, to the climate of fear that Congress was tapping into and stoking with the second round of HUAC hearings which ran concurrent to that year's Oscar voting. Or maybe, at least in Judy's case, it was just that Gloria Swanson and Betty Davis split the vote. In the public imagination of 1950 to 1951, Judy Holliday was completely indivisible from the character of Billy Dawn, who she played in Born Yesterday, a dumb-seeming blonde who is actually much craftier than she appears. When commentators went after her, they would use phrases like, She knew what she was doing, and call her a smart cookie. It was true that in real life, Judy was a brainiac and politically conscious. It was not true that she was using her ditzy image as a front for a calculated campaign of national subversion. But her screen image and what she projected was inherently culturally subversive. No surname change or bleach blonde makeover could hide the fact that Judy was at her core a Jewish girl from working-class New York. And in fact, the dialogue Kanan wrote and the cadences Judy gave it highlighted the real woman inside Columbia's glossy packaging. This was a time when Americans were instructed to look at images of celebrities for an idealized instruction in how a person should be. Judy Holliday projected something quite different. She was the closest Hollywood would get in this era at representing a normal person's struggle to fit into that idealized image. Just the fact that there was a discrepancy between the complicated, messy lives most people lived and the polished, perfect image of American life that they were supposed to aspire to 
was not part of the conversation in the early 1950s. Judy Holliday was subversive because, even if just on a subconscious level, she made moviegoers think about that discrepancy. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. Because of everything Judy projected, it seems like only she was surprised when a subpoena from Senator McCarran's subcommittee arrived, inviting her to testify. McCarran's committee, which was based in the Senate rather than the House, was somewhat different from HUAC in that its goal was much more specific than the vague notion of spotlighting and eradicating subversion. McCarran wanted to limit immigration to the United States and the rights of immigrants who were already there, and he intended to do that by proving that immigrant families, particularly those who originally hailed from Eastern Europe, were likely to lean communist. So Judy knew she wouldn't only be asked questions about herself, but about her whole family, which included a number of liberal activists, and in her uncle Joe, one former registered communist. In calling a batch of performers before his committee, McCarran knew that he was courting headlines. But without a doubt, the crown jewel of the batch was Judy, the reigning Best Actress winner and new darling of stage and screen, who in just a year of Hollywood success had established herself as the face of the East Coast urban every girl and who had probably as close to the model family history for McCarran's arguments that he was going to find in Hollywood. The subpoena could have made Judy instantly radioactive. It certainly would have given Columbia an excuse to cancel her contract if they had wanted to. But unlike many other people who were subpoenaed, Judy Holliday had the full support of her studio. Harry Cohn knew she was no communist, and he provided her with expensive legal counsel and a strategy. Judy was instructed to play the dumb blonde from the movies, to prove that she was no smart cookie by convincing them that she had never thought too hard about much of anything. Judy would testify before the committee on March 26, 1952, a date that had been negotiated by Columbia to come after the release of Judy's next movie, The Marrying Kind. This strategy may not have been the smartest. With no headlines about Holiday clearing her name, the idea that she was red got no counterpoint. The mid-March opening of The Marrying Kind was picketed by the Catholic war veterans, who held placards with two lengthy and inaccurate slogans. Judy Holliday is the darling of the daily worker. And while our boys are dying in Korea, Judy Holliday is defaming Congress. Less than two weeks later, 
Judy showed up to testify in closed session. She was mostly questioned by Richard Ahrens, the committee's counsel. Ahrens forced Judy to state for the record whether or not she was Jewish, which she acknowledged that she was. After asking questions about Judy's own involvement with communist and front organizations, all of which she answered with canny evasiveness, usually suggesting that if she had done something, she hadn't really known what she was doing, Ahrens moved on to level accusations about Judy's uncle, Joseph Gollum, and at Judy's former collaborators in The Reviewers, Betty Comden, Adolph Green, Alvin Hammer, and John Frank. When asked if she had performed with the group at a Spanish Civil War benefit, Judy insisted that she couldn't remember. When asked about another event supposedly sponsored by a communist group, Judy made an artfully worded declaration of naivete. I don't know anything that I ever did sponsored by the Communist Party. Her default excuse for evidence that put her or her signature in the wrong place at the wrong time was that her desire to do good had been taken advantage of by snakes dressed up as definite non-communists. She refused to confirm any of the committee's suspicions about any of the reviewers, or those about a woman with whom Judy was still friends, with whom she had had a romantic relationship while Judy was in her 20s. By the end of the session, Judy's faux naivete and willingness to be patronized by the committee seemed to have charmed her interrogators. Her Billy Dawn, confused dame act, had been brilliantly performed, almost better than Kanan could have scripted it. Witness this exchange, after Judy acknowledged that Columbia had had an investigator look into her past to dredge up anything that could have been used against her. Senator Watkins. You hired people to investigate you? Miss Holliday. I certainly did, because I had gotten into a lot of trouble. Mr. Ahrens. What do you mean by you had gotten into a lot of trouble? Miss Holliday. Yes. Mr. Ahrens. Has anybody tried to prosecute you? Miss Holliday. Yes. Mr. Ahrens. Who? Miss Holliday. Prosecute? No, I thought you meant persecute. Finally, the interrogators were satisfied that Judy had apologized sufficiently for crimes she hadn't known she was committing. Well, I guess you've learned to watch it now, said Senator Watkins. Judy responded, Ho, ho, have I ever. Now I don't say yes to anything except cancer, polio, and cerebral palsy. Judy was blacklisted from TV and radio work for a short time, but her career was otherwise unimpacted by her testimony. Which isn't to say that her reputation had been fully repaired by more or less cooperating with the committee. When the Senate released transcripts of Judy's testimony in violation of their agreement with Columbia, Judy was again attacked in the media and besieged with hate mail. When it became public knowledge that she was pregnant with her first and only child, she started getting letters from the mothers of American boys who had been sent to fight in Korea, stating the wish that Judy's baby be born deformed. Like so many of you, I love to learn new things. That's why I'm excited about the new The Great Courses Plus video learning service. You can learn about anything and everything with unlimited access to Great Courses lecture series on hundreds of topics taught by top professors. You must try The Great Courses Plus, so they're giving my listeners a special chance to watch their popular course 
Understanding the Inventions that Changed the World, and hundreds of other courses, absolutely free. Understanding the Inventions that Changed the World is a fascinating exploration of history and innovation, chronicling inventions that shape our lives today, including a lecture on motion pictures in episode 22. With The Great Courses Plus, watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. Just for a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering my listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Understanding the Inventions that Changed the World, a $320 value, free for a month. So start watching today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash remember. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash remember. Judy Holiday's post-testimony movies seesaw between presenting the essential Judy Holiday, the ethnic workaday every woman struggling against the expectations of the culture, and the promotion of romantic fantasies that were much less threatening to the idealized image of 1950s life. The best of these films were It Should Happen to You, released in 1954, and Bells Are Ringing, made in 1960. Like Born Yesterday, It Should Happen to You was directed by George Cukor and written by Garson Kanan, and it also starred Judy as a young woman whose long-repressed, burning need to assert herself comes out in spectacular ways. In this film, Judy is Gladys Glover, an unemployed kook who decides to rent a billboard in Columbus Circle to advertise nothing but herself, and soon thereafter, she becomes the celebrity of the moment, based on nothing but name recognition. It Should Happen to You becomes a satire of the burgeoning advertising industry and mid-century media culture, anticipating Warhol's ideas about celebrity by about 10 years. It's a fair criticism to say that much of the movie's cultural commentary essentially becomes conventional romantic obstacle, keeping Gladys from fully committing to her true love, a documentary filmmaker played by Jack Lemmon in his first major role. And ultimately, Gladys does give up selling herself in order to take the conventional route of marriage. But it's hard to see that as a bad thing while you're watching the movie, because Holiday and Lemon have such satisfying chemistry. And at least it doesn't feel like the character is forced into 50s domesticity. In fact, it feels like she's choosing the more authentic life than the artificial world of spokesmodeling for a commercial lie. But it's true that for a movie about a woman's journey to self-realization to end with her driving off with the guy who spent the entire story trying to stop her from pursuing her dreams is very of its time. Bells Are Ringing is the more radical, weirder work, and though it was a success on Broadway for about two years, the film was considered a disaster in its day, and it ended Judy's movie career. Camden and Green wrote the show as a kind of love letter to what they saw as the real Judy, not the dumb blonde she was so often asked to play, but a uniquely good-hearted kook who, if anything, overthinks herself into trouble. Judy's Ella believes people are inherently good and want to be and do good for each other, and she works miracles counteracting fear, paranoia, and insecurity with kindness. Bells Are Ringing has been interpreted as a veiled story about the blacklist, but I think that's something of a stretch, despite the fact that two of its big numbers make linguistic jokes about the HUAC era. Judy's big ballad is called The Party's Over, 
And the highlight of a party scene is an ensemble number figuring Judy as the uncool, uncouth, notably Semitic outsider. The party's host encourages her to fit in by doing what everyone else does. Drop a name. Bells Are Ringing was the last of the MGM musicals from the team of producer Arthur Freed and director Vincent Minnelli, the pair responsible for Meet Me in St. Louis, The Bandwagon, and Gigi. Minnelli gives the same attention to design detail that he previously lavished on the painter's world of an American in Paris to the downtrodden apartment that serves as the headquarters of Suzanne Serphone, the answering service where Judy's Ella works and through which she adopts dozens of identities in order to give each client what they need. The clutter and dismal lighting and dry rot on the walls is almost too graphic. It's a cartoon of working-class claustrophobia. But this extremely heightened realism sort of works. This is a musical in which at least half the numbers are internal monologues made external, about a working woman who helps other people believe in themselves, while believing that she'll never achieve her dreams by being herself, because herself is just not good enough. Ella becomes the victim of mistaken identity first when two investigators decide Suzanne's phone is a front for a brothel, and then when she falls in love with one of her answering service clients, played by Dean Martin. In this scene, Judy's Ella and Martin's Jeff are meeting for the first time after talking on the phone for years. She's gone to his apartment to make sure he doesn't sleep off a drinking binge all day and screw up a big writing assignment. But Jeff doesn't know that Ella is the woman from the answering service. He thinks she's some miracle woman who has dropped into his life to save him from himself. First, Ella talks to Jeff like no woman ever has. Then, each character sings what they're thinking. You call other people phonies because you hate yourself. You're afraid what you write isn't going to be important enough, so you don't write anything at all. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Boy, do you know me. Mr. Moss, you have to have confidence in yourself. 
I don't even know you, but I have confidence in you. You do? Yes, I do. You're crazy. Yes, I know. I'll try. Can this be a dream? Can I still be asleep on the couch there? Can this girl be really here? She seems to know by sheer intuition how I landed in this condition. Boy, does she know me the way that I think, the way that I drink, the fact that I slept all year. But it's not a dream, cause look, I've got some words on the paper. Steady boy, don't faint or scream. Don't ask who sent you this angel. It's better, better than a dream. Better than a dream. What you are is better far than a dream. I tried to picture your face. In that, it's a story of a woman who only becomes herself and gets what she wants when she's forced to stop lying. It's hardly revolutionary, but I think Bells Are Ringing is the best movie example of Judy Holliday just being Judy Holliday. And I love it. It was my first exposure to her. And I'll never forget the extent to which I was moved. Seeing a realistically flawed woman at the center of a 1950s film, which depicted a fantasy version of New York that celebrates the idiosyncrasies of each member of the masses. When I learned that it was a movie that Judy hated making, that she spent much of the production crying uncontrollably in her dressing room, and that the general public was totally indifferent to it, and Hollywood considered it proof that Judy Holliday's brief period of stardom was over, it broke my heart. The Blacklist didn't end Judy Holliday's film career, but her film career did slow to a crawl over the rest of the 1950s, basically the period of The Blacklist, And there were a lot of factors that went into that. For one thing, Columbia never had a lot of material suited to her. Though her body type was decidedly 50s, maybe even a little too ample for the only decade in which fullness was valued as an on-screen type, everything else about her was extremely 1930s. Although there was often much poignancy to her characterizations, in movies, she never stretched beyond the parameters of screwball. In part, it seems, because she was afraid to. In the middle of the decade, Judy felt the studio began to give up on her as they lavished more attention on their new blonde, Kim Novak, who had starred with Judy and Jack Lemmon in their second film together, Puffed, and had been allowed to steal the show. At the end of the 1950s, Judy went almost four years without making a movie, and then when she did star in a film, Bells Are Ringing, it flopped. At that point, she was almost 40 years old, and not many 40-year-old actresses were getting big roles in movies in 1960. After Bells Are Ringing, Judy took her first dramatic part on the stage, playing the actress Lorette Taylor. But she dropped out of the show before it opened, citing her health. She had been having trouble with her voice, and after she got out of the show, she had a tumor removed from her throat. While she was in the hospital, the doctors discovered that she had breast cancer. She had a mastectomy and was cleared to go back to work, but she was depressed, and no one in the theater or movies 
seemed to want her. She and her boyfriend, musician Jerry Mulligan, collaborated to write a musical with Anita Lowe's called Happy Birthday, which they weren't able to get produced. The IRS showed up at the worst time, asking Judy for about $100,000 in back taxes. And then she was diagnosed with cancer again, this time in her throat, and this time too advanced to operate. Judy Holliday died on June 7, 1965, at the age of 43. Days after her funeral, the IRS swooped in and seized all of her remaining assets. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our production and research assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Henry Malofsky. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. A good way of doing that is by subscribing to us on iTunes and rating and reviewing the show there. You can also subscribe on many other podcatchers. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod and find us on Facebook and Instagram too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. All dreams must end. Take off your makeup. The party's over. It's all over, my friend.